thank you, praise and worship team. What awesome worship. Please be seated. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. What awesome worship. Great job, guys. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Today we're talking about from no hope to new hope, one in Christ. From no hope to new hope. One in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following. Here's what the Apostle Paul tells us. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body, that's the church, to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And here he quotes Isaiah 57 saying, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, and then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. From no hope to new hope. One in Christ. There were two friends, a black guy and a white guy. They both loved Jesus and they were dear friends. And they loved worshiping together and playing golf together and going fishing together. But they always teased each other. You know, God's really black. No, God's really white. God's really black. God's really white. Nah, and they teased each other about this all the time. One day they were going to play golf on a Saturday morning and unfortunately there was a car accident in which they both died. They came to and realized that they had died but then realized they were going to go to heaven and they're outside the gates of heaven. They started teasing each other again. Hey, now we're going to find out is God really black or is God really white? And about that time a voice came from the other side of the gates in heaven that said, Buenos dias, amigos. Never even crossed their mind. We all think God's a lot like us. Whatever God's like, he looks like us. I have done a detailed study of scripture. I've given my life to studying this book. I have preached in churches which are predominantly white churches. But I have learned something by studying this Bible. So all the white people in the congregation, I need you to follow something very carefully that I'm about to show you. You see that? That page in the back of my Bible, you see that? That's white. We ain't white. Get over it. 
And we've put all sorts of things to try to divide the body of Christ. And quite often and too frequently, race has divided the body of Christ. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said Sunday morning at 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour in America. And too often that's still true. And such things should not be. We are one in Christ. And in their day, back in the first century, the problem was Jew and Gentile. In our day, we get worked up over black, white, Hispanic, Vietnamese, Korean, Japanese, whatever the culture may be. We want to divide along these lines. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, Paul emphasizes that ethnic and cultural barriers which divide us are done away with when we believe on Christ for salvation. So far in the first two messages from Ephesians, we've talked about what salvation means for you and I as individuals. In Ephesians 1, we looked at God's uh, amazing sovereignty and how he reigns and rules and predestines. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, we saw that we're saved by grace through faith and how Jesus Christ transforms a life through grace. And so in the first two sermons, we looked at what salvation has to do for us as individuals. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, Paul begins to talk about what it means to be saved by grace and how that works itself out in a congregation. And he uses in this passage an interesting phrase that you were without hope. And maybe you felt that way, that you were without hope. Someone had circled you out. Someone had excluded you. And this morning, we want you to understand that we're moving from no hope to new hope. We are one in Christ And in this passage, we're going to learn how the church is a radical new community of brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to learn three striking features of this new community. First, we're going to see that the gospel reconciles enemies. Then we're going to see that the gospel creates a united body of believers. And then we're going to see that the gospel gives us a new identity. First, the gospel reconciles enemies. To understand what Paul says... In verses 11 through 13, I have to give you some background. The early church was composed almost entirely of Jewish people. Don't forget it. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Jesus was Jewish. Paul was Jewish. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they're Jewish. And all these people are Jewish followers in the early church. And early on, there became some dissension in the church. What do you do when you have a predominantly Jewish faith? Our roots are deeply embedded in the Jewish faith. What do you do when you have Gentile believers start joining the church? Some of you who know your Bible, Acts 15, the first church council, this was a major issue. Peter preached from the Old Testament at his first sermon in Pentecost. All the apostles were Jewish, but some members of the early church didn't quite know what to do with people who were not Jewish, and they began believing on Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And so there was tension between Jews and Gentiles in the early church. And Paul, I would remind you, Paul's actually in prison when he writes these things. The book of Ephesians, probably written somewhere between 60 and 62 AD, when Paul is in prison in Rome. Now, notice what's happening. He's in Rome. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. Meanwhile, back at the church in Ephesus, you got people hung up on, well, he's Jewish and I'm Gentile. What are we supposed to do with that? Paul's saying, wait a minute, I've got a lot bigger issues. My life is in danger because of the gospel, and you're still hung up on these petty things. 
Sometimes we as Christians in America get hung up on racial issues and we forget that all around the world on any given morning, Christians are suffering. They're suffering in Iran and they're suffering in Indonesia. They're suffering in Saudi Arabia. They're suffering in Kuwait. They suffer meeting in silent and hidden places all around the world and we get hung up about, well, who's this person? What's his skin color? Well, the the gospel is so much bigger than any of these trivial, ridiculous ideas that we get in our head about race and ethnicity. So much bigger than all that. And Paul says uh, that the gospel reconciles enemies. Enemies are reconciled in the gospel. And first of all, we see what happens. How do these enemies even get created? Well, it starts with animosity. Animosity. Would you look in verse 11? I want to show you a term. It says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh were called the uncircumcision. I want to look at that word for one moment. It's not just any old word, but it was a very vivid term. And in fact, it was a derogatory term. And so Paul's writing to this Ephesian church, primarily made up of Gentiles, built on a Jewish foundation. And he's saying to them, okay, some of you folks who are Gentiles, people used to call you names because you weren't like the rest of them. And here's one of the names they used to call you, uncircumcision. It's a very vivid word, which I won't get into in public because we have kids in the service today. But it's a put down. And it's a derogatory term that's being used right here. It's a derogatory term, and that leads to uh, really antagonism. We like to antagonize people who are different from us. This often shows up in college athletics in a humorous way. Back in the 1990s, West Virginia was playing the University of Pittsburgh in the famous backyard brawl. That's some kind of football game they have. And this particular year, the game was being held at Pittsburgh. And so the public address announcer there at the University of Pittsburgh Stadium, I think they play at Heinz Field now, but at their stadium at that time, he came on the loudspeaker and he said, ladies and gentlemen, attention, a tractor in the parking lot has its lights on, West Virginia license plate, E-I-E-I-O. And um, he was suspended for a couple of weeks for that. Can you believe that? Though he earned a place of great honor in Pittsburgh fans. But you know how that goes because we've got KU and K-State, Wichita State, all that here in, in uh, Kansas. Well, sometimes we antagonize each other about those things. For example, someone said, do you know why KU fans like to watch basketball games at K-State's arena? It's because there's no national championship banners to obscure your view. That's why they like watching the games there. But then you know what happened for KU, though? You heard about KU, right? Equal opportunity offender. You hear what happened to KU? Their football team in spring training this year had an anthrax scare. A white substance was found on the football field. They called in the FBI. The FBI said, don't worry. This white substance that you found on the field is not anthrax. It's the goal line. You're just not used to seeing it. So... We antagonize each other about these things. Such things are funny when we're talking about sports. It's not funny when we're talking about people. I have a bit of reservation about telling you what I'm going to tell you next because I'm, it's embarrassing, but I hope that it will help all of us learn because it deals with my life and something I once said, and I sinned. 
I was 17 years old. I was a Saturday morning. It was a clear blue sky. We actually had spring that year. Can you imagine that? We actually had spring. And I was in the driveway of my home of my parents' house, and I was washing a pickup truck in the driveway, and my dad came out to talk to me. And I used a word that Christians shouldn't use. I sinned. And my dad who got a, had to finish his, he didn't actually graduate from high school, had to finish his high school through some correspondence and whatnot, was not the most educated man, but he said something that I'll never forget. It's, I can still hear it in my ears today. He said, it just disgust in his face, because I never heard a racial epithet in my home growing up, not once. And he said, I don't know where you learned to talk like that, but you didn't learn it around here, and when you say things like that, you sound ignorant. And it was a godly rebuke, and I needed it. C.D. McConnell, a Christian ethicist, has defined racism as, quote, a learned belief in racial superiority, which includes the belief that race determines intellectual, cultural, and moral capacities. So often racism is tied to someone's own failures, our own failures. Life hasn't worked out the way we'd hoped, and so we want to put someone else down. Perhaps someone else is suffering the consequences of, or someone is suffering the consequences of his or her own choices, and to feel better about themselves, they put someone else down. Racism instills a false sense of superiority, which is idolatrous and sinful, and it creates enemies, real or imaginism, where the gospel wants us to have friends. And antagonism leads to animosity. Starts with antagonism. We call pe other people names to put them down so we feel good, and then it leads to animosity. Notice what it says. I'm going to bleed down into verse 14 here. I need to show you something. So he talks about this name calling that had been going on. They're far apart from Christ. In verse 13 he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here it is, verse 14. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. And here it is, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. It's an interesting phrase, the barrier of the dividing wall. What does Paul have in mind here? He uses an unusual metaphor, the barrier of the dividing wall. That uh, literally can be woodenly translated the dividing wall, which is the fence. Well, what is the fence? In context, Paul goes on to talk about the Old Testament law in verse 15. I rather suspect what he has in mind is the way some people have been abusing the Old Testament to exclude other people from God's promises. Long story short, that's the dividing wall. They've taken something good, God's Old Testament, and abused it for bad purposes. And so he's talking about the law. And to create this artificial barrier by who gets in and out of the church. Harold Honer of Dallas Theological Seminary says this. They were to keep the law which provided the opportunity to witness to their Gentile neighbors of God's wonderful deliverance and care. Rather than using the law as a witness, it became the tool that enabled them to look down on Gentiles whom they considered sinners. Hence, this caused hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And they created an artificial spiritual wall, an artificial kind of metaphorical wall they'd thrown up between them and other people. And God, Paul said, hey, God's breaking all that down. And then in verse 14, he uses this interesting phrase, this uh, barrier division, this dividing wall, this, this uh, artificial barrier you've put up. Christ is breaking that down. 
But actually, in that day, there was a visual reminder of what this may have been. You have a diagram here of the first century temple. This is Herod's temple. And I want to show you something. Now, I don't think Paul had exactly this in mind, but it is a picture of the sort of walls and barriers that people were putting up in that day. And if you'll notice right in the middle... That says a wall of partition. You see a long, low line that goes around. There's a major wall on the outside. And if you look in the middle, it says a wall of partition. In the first century, that wall of partition was about a four and a half foot high wall. It had, uh, it was like a, a balustrade. It, it stood about this high. And it's called the wall of the Gentiles. It separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest. And so if you were a Gentile, you could go into the temple complex, but you were not supposed to go past that wall of partition. You're not supposed to go past that. And in fact, an archaeological find has been discovered that shows how seriously they find this. This was, what you're looking at right here was discovered in 1871 in Jerusalem. And it is a warning that was attached to that wall that you just saw. This wall that separated the Gentiles from everyone else. And here's what it says on that inscription. It says, let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death. Man, they're talking death penalty for crossing that law wall. Do you see this? So the sort of spiritual attitude that Paul's talking about in verses 14 and 15 had a very real image in mind. Anyone who'd gone to Jerusalem knew about it. We don't know if the people in Ephesus had ever been to Jerusalem. We don't know if they knew about it, but it was something in that era that people knew about. If you cross this wall and you're not Jewish, you're Gentile, you die putting up barriers see that's what we do as humans we put up walls where God wants to tear them down we put up barriers where God wants us to be friends you say nobody would do anything like that we've educated mankind's gotten better right the summer of 1992 I preached at a church in Creedmoor North Carolina for eight weeks I was filling in for their pastor I don't really want to name the church its name's not important we have a photograph here there's the Next slide up. Here's the church that I preached at. It's still in existence today. The building you're looking at is actually older than the Southern Baptist Convention. It was built between 1841 and 1844. Convention didn't start till 1845. And I preached in that building for eight weeks the summer of 1992. Just an aside, sometimes we preachers get a little long-winded. And so I remember about my third or fourth Sunday there, I looked up and I was about halfway through my sermon. It was already 12 o'clock and I didn't know what had happened. And I figured out they'd moved the clock forward. They were tired of me preaching too long. Anyway, um, they also remember they turned down the lights. Just remember they turned down the lights so people could sleep better while I'm preaching. Did anyone sleep while I'm preaching? Shocking, but they did. Well, that church building was built in 1844. If you go inside that building right there, it's still in existence today. They have another partition. You sh I showed you one from the temple. They've got a partition that the Christians, when they built that church building, they put up. It's called a slave gallery. If you go in that building, it's still in existence today, finished in 1844. There's a slave gallery up top. It's not a balcony, it's a slave gallery because you see the original owners, uh, founders of that church, many of them are slave owners. And the owners would sit down on the main level and the slaves had to sit upstairs. God forgive us for building churches with a slave gallery. I'm a Southern Baptist. I'm proud to be a Southern Baptist. I, I, I I get paid by Southern Baptist. We need to be honest for a minute. 
It's time for us to have some family talk and be transparent. Southern Baptist Convention was founded in 1845. You know why we were founded? Because the missionary boards didn't want to appoint slaveholders as missionaries. And a group of Baptists said no, from the South said, no, we think that slaveholding shouldn't prevent you, uh, prevent you from being a missionary. God help us. How you say I want to be a missionary and a slaveholder in the same sentence, I don't know how those fit. They don't fit together. It makes no sense. You know why? Because racism makes you stupid. That's why. You start approving all sorts of things that, you wouldn't, that God never had anything to do with. Nothing to do with. But then there's good news. We've talked about the antagonism and we've talked about the animosity. But then there's the amazing reconciliation. Look at verse 13. But now, but now in Christ... You who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In the Old Testament, Gentile nations are referred to as being far off. You can see Isaiah 57 for this. What a picture of salvation brought near. The good shepherd left the 90 and 9 to find me and to find you, and he brought us near. We're all just, a, I don't know what your heritage is. Most of us, uh, listen, you... Look back to my ancestors 800 years ago. They're in northern Europe somewhere painting themselves blue, dancing naked around the oak tree somewhere. Thank God for the gospel. Can I get an amen? I mean, thank God for the gospel. I don't want to go back to Nordic mythology and Thor and all this junk. He picked us up. The good shepherd came and found us. He picked us up. He picked me up. And he picked you up. He picked us up and he brought us near and reconciled us to God. And when Jesus reconciles me and when Jesus reconciles you, we are no longer enemies. We are friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. The church bleeds the blood red of Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see that the gospel also creates a united body of believers. Notice what happens. It's emphatic. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. The, the word he there, the pronoun he is emphatic. It's, it's, you should read it like this. He, he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Jesus brings peace. In 55 AD, when uh, just a few years before Paul wrote this letter, the Roman philosopher Seneca introduced the phrase, uh, Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and they bragged about that, the Pax Romana, that Rome had brought peace to the world. Well, they still had wars, but the way Rome brought peace, the Pax Romana in Latin that they talked about, was through the hobnailed boot and through the sword and through the legions and through war. And the way they made peace was they just defeated all their enemies and killed a bunch of people until everybody quit fighting. The Pax Romana. But this was a peace, the Pax Romana they talked about, the peace that Rome gave was a peace that was also punctuated by gladiatorial games where people killed one another in bloodlust and people in the stands just applauding and applauding and applauding and that's the peace of Rome. That's not real peace. Real peace comes through the cross. We are brought near by the blood of Jesus. 
Jesus laid at the cross, Jesus Christ laid one hand on sinful man and he laid one hand on holy God and we had been rebels and enemies to God and at the cross Jesus laid one hand on sinful man and another nail pierced hand on holy God and he reconciled enemies. We have peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. What a miracle. He creates a united body believers out of this peace that he gives. In the military, the white flag is a universally recognized sign of surrender. When you run up the white flag, it means I quit. I quit. No more fighting. And there's someone here this morning, and you could say lots of things about your life. There's many adjectives you could use to describe your life. You might say that your life is interesting. You might say that your life has lots of adventure. You might say that your life is painful. You might describe your life as lack of sobriety. You might describe your life by addicted. You might describe your life by impure. You can use all sorts of adjectives, but the one you can't use is peace. Because if there's anything you don't have, it's peace. Listen carefully. Jesus Christ is the Prince of He's the Prince of Peace. It is His realm and His authority. And Jesus brings peace. This world gives you chaos. The world says, drink this, and you drank it. The world said, smoke this, and you smoked it. The world says, sleep here, and you did. The world says, do this, and you did. And none of it brought you peace. But Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And Jesus Christ reconciles enemies, and He brings peace. I'm telling you, there's, when, where there's chaos, Jesus brings order. He's the Prince of Peace. He reconciles enemies. And we're brought near to God. Some of you have been fighting God for years. People have told you about Jesus, and you've heard the gospel, and people have preached the gospel to you, and you've been boxing with God. You've been fighting, I don't need your rules. I don't need your Bible. I don't need this cross. I don't need this Jesus. And he has left you exhausted and broken and worn down. Listen, you need to run up the old white flag of surrender today. Today is the day you just march out with the white flag of surrender and say, God, no more fighting with you. God, today I surrender. Jesus, you're the Prince of Peace, and I surrender to you, and let his peace flood your life. What good news in the gospel. Hey, run up the white flag. Quit fighting. Why, why would you fight the Prince of Peace who offers you so much? But notice what else, the power of the gospel. I've, he's abolished in his flesh. Did you see that? Verse 15, abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Ended the whole system of Jewish law that excluded the Gentiles. Uh, the, the word abolish here in the New American Standard is perhaps not as precise as we might hope. It's really rendered inoperative or nullified. The law has three purposes for us today, the Old Testament law. First of all, it shows us our need for a Savior. It's like a mirror. When you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, the mirror cannot change your condition. The mirror just tells you that you're a wreck. And the Old Testament law is like that. You look in the mirror of the law and you realize that, oh, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. So the law functions like a mirror. The law also functions like a bride. In a culture, when you pronounce the Ten Commandments and you teach people the Ten Commandments, it awakens the conscience. You see, the conscience is only as good as this reference point. If the reference point is T-Pain and Flo Rider and uh, 
uh, whoever, little Wayne and whoever else you're listening to, your conscience is not going to work very well because you're listening to a bunch of trash. If the conscience is informed by the word of God, it works much better, even in an unconverted person. So the, the, the law actually has a civil purpose in that by proclaiming the Ten Commandments in a culture, you awaken people's conscience and they are less likely to do violent things to other people. That's why in our culture, we've taken down the Ten Commandments in our schools and we've put up metal detectors. Because you don't have a conscience informed by the Word of God. So the conscience serves like a bridle to rein in a horse. It awakens the conscience. It serves like a mirror. It also serves like a whip for the Christian. It, the law has a purpose in driving us on to holiness. So the law still has a purpose, both spiritual to show us our need for a Savior and civil to restrain evil and and then also as we're saved to help us grow in our maturity. But notice the key phrase. Here it is. It says, one new man. Did you see that? He's to make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And this one new man is then made into one body in verse 16. That phrase for one body is the church. What power that transforms lives and makes us one. Our identity is not in our skin color or our heritage. It is now in Christ which leads need to say something about next Sunday. Pastor Geronimo de la Cruz is going to speak in this pulpit right here next Sunday. And we're going to share the Lord's Supper next Sunday. And there's not going to be two congregations meeting. There will be one congregation. Listen, Hispanic and Anglo are going to be here together. Listen carefully what I'm about to tell you. Pastor Geronimo's English is not great. It's a hundred times better than my Spanish. I promise you that. And he's going to share his testimony about growing up in Veracruz and how God saved people in his family. And he saw that and he got saved. And he's going to share his testimony because he's my brother in Christ. And we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. The bodies and the blood. We're going to share. And we're going to together, we're going to hold it up. And in Spanish and English, we're going to say things like, this is my body. This is my blood. This is the table that binds us together. How can you hold hatred for someone with whom you share the Lord's Supper? How? You can't stay. What does it say? John 3.16, for God so loved. No, he just loves people who look like us, right? No, what does it say? God so loved the? I've been in some churches. I hate to... First church I ever served, Poplar Springs Baptist Church. I love my pastor, Harry Michael. He is my friend to this day. He is my dearest friend on the face of planet Earth. 1992, he resigned the church. They'd started a, um, I was at seminary by this time. They'd started a, a child care ministry across the street. And we had people from all over. And we were getting prospects left and right. We didn't know what to do on outreach night with all the people coming through the child care ministry. Had every ethnic heritage represented there. This happened in my lifetime. I know the two men that did what I'm about to tell you. They're both dead now. But in 1992, after my dearest friend in this world, Brother Harry, resigned, two Baptist deacons, whom I know, and they're both dead now, went to that child care ministry and said, we want the name of all the non-white children, and we want, to we want all the non-white families to know they're not welcome here. That happened in a Baptist church where I used to serve. That ordained me to the ministry. And it's ungodly. God help us. 
How can you hold, how can you stand and pray in a church and then say things like that to someone else? It does not fit the gospel. Listen carefully. Wichita has changed a lot. It's going to change some more. You got to get your mind wrapped around this. Does the Great Commission mean all the nations or does it mean all the nations? Are we going to buy into that completely or not? What does it say? Go ye therefore into where all nations making disciples baptizing them everybody man i don't care church ought to look just a little bit like heaven it's just what's heaven going you know how you'll you know how you know the baptist at heaven when you get around the crystal sea you know how you know the baptist there at heaven everybody's praising the lamb you'll see the baptist in the back going i don't have a bulletin where's the bulletin right I, I just worship the lamb but i don't have a just worship that well when does it end just worship the lamb and it says every race and every tribe and every tongue and the church ought to go ahead and look like a little bit like that today. That people from every background. Listen, there's enough junk in Wichita. This church ought to be an oasis of love and an oasis of grace and a dry land where people from all sorts of brokenness and hurt and heartache come and they discover the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they get transformed and saved. Don't you have a vision of that? Mamas and daddies that, that love their children and love their families and love each other and Jesus transforms them. Well, the gospel gives a new identity. <clears throat> Not only does it create one body, it gives a new identity. Notice what it says in verse 19. Dr. Branch, we like it when you tell jokes. We don't like it when you talk to us about things like this. Ah, oh, well... So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Fellow citizens. The world creates caste. We have all sorts of caste system in the world. Some people are in and some people are out. There is no caste system with the church. We're all equal before Jesus. We're fellow citizens. And then it says family. Did you notice this? We are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with, God, with the saints and you are of God's household. That's family language. We're all one family. We live in a day of fatherless children. 23% of children in the U.S. live with a single mother, according to the U.S. Census Bureau in 2016. Between 1960 and 2016, the percentage of children living with two parents decreased from 88% to 69%. The percentage of children living with two married, married parents is even less. How many children look enviously when they're, they're riding down the street and they say a daddy shooting basketball with their son and they say, I wish I had a daddy. How many little girls hear their friends going to a daddy-daughter dance and there's no daddy in their home and they say, I wish I had a daddy. Uh, we got some kids here dressed up for the prom. Man, y'all look good. I'm telling you, you look good. I'm so proud of you. But you know, there's some girls, there's some guys, church, you know this. There's some men roaming around, some young men, 17, 18, 19. They look for a girl who doesn't have a daddy in the home. You know, you Baptist deacons looking for something y'all do, I got a ministry for you. When you got single moms in the church and they got a daughter and there's no daddy there to put the fear of God in that boy when he comes to pick her up for a date, y'all to get about three old Baptist deacons sitting on the porch saying, son, this girl doesn't have a daddy, but she's got us. And boy, we're going to be here when you get back. We just want you to know that. And we're not ordained to preach. We're just ordained to be deacons, which means we're not worried about winding up in the newspaper, if you know what I mean. So... 
Getting some Christian men with some girls that have a daddy that puts their You don't have a daddy. You come to the church. You're part of God's family. And you get embraced by the church. And your home may be broken, but you got a family that loves you and cares about you. Man, that's good news. We are fellow citizens. We're family. Now, the challenge with family is you can't choose your family. Someone said, well, you can't choose your favorites. I understand that, but... You are part of God's family. Then you're founded on Christ, the cornerstone. The church is better be built on Jesus. We try to build the church on all sorts of things. We have some of the best music you'll ever hear in America right here at this church. I mean, it's awesome. But listen carefully. Mark will tell you, you don't build a church on music. Build a church on Jesus. You got a fine building. You don't build a church on a building. You build a church on Jesus. You don't build a church necessarily on a strategy. It must be built on Jesus. He's the cornerstone. You know, in every area of human accomplishment, there's always some debate and someone else may be chosen. In someone's chosen field, someone else may be just as good or great as someone you name. Someone mentions LeBron James. Somebody else mentions Michael Jordan in basketball. In football, if somebody mentions Peyton Manning, somebody else talks about Tom Brady. If you're listening to literature, you're reading literature, someone mentions uh, Homer, the Iliad and Odyssey, and someone else mentions Shakespeare. If you're talking about music, somebody mentions Mozart, and somebody else mentions Beethoven. If you're talking about art, somebody mentions Raphael, somebody else mentions Michelangelo. There's always some comparison. But when it comes to spiritual things, when you say the name Jesus, everyone must get silent because there's no one else to compare to Jesus. He's the cornerstone. And, have to, and we're filled with the Spirit. Do you notice what it says in verses 21 and 22? Notice what it says here. In whom the whole building is being fitted together, going into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you're also being built together into a dwelling of God, the Spirit. So uh, the idea is that we're being built into this new temple. And in the Old Testament, when Solomon built the temple, God came down and filled the temple with the Spirit. And now in the New Testament, now that uh, we are the temple of God, the Holy Spirit comes down and fills us when we're saved. Our identity is not primarily in our race or our political party. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. And our world puts our identity in all sorts of things, so much shallowness and so much silliness. But our identity is not in our looks. Our identity is not in our heritage primarily. Our identity is not in our affiliations politically, though I hope that Christians are involved in politics. Our identity is in the crucified, buried, and resurrected Savior Jesus Christ. Above all, above everything, our name is Christian. We've been bought with a price, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's our identity. Talk about who you are. Your identity is in Christ. I close with this. Corey Ten Boone is a name that some of you young people may not know. Some of the older folks will remember her. Corey Ten Boone was a Dutch watchmaker and a Christian who, along with her family member, helped rescue quite a many Jewish people from the Holocaust in Europe during World War II. They lived under Nazi occupation in Holland during World War II. Eventually, the Nazis caught the Ten Boone family trying to hide Jewish people, and they were sent to different um, concentration camps to die. Corey Ten Boone and her sister were both sent to Robin, Ravensbrück, where her sister died. Her sister died in the Nazi concentration camp at Ravensbrück. Corey Ten Boone survived the war. After the war, she went back to Germany to preach peace and forgiveness 
to the nation where she had been imprisoned. One night in 1947, she was speaking at a church. It wasn't so very large, maybe a couple hundred people in attendance. And after the service was over, everyone's kind of shuffling out the back. She said in the first couple years after the war, uh, as she was sharing her faith in Germany, that that's a common reaction she got. People kind of shuffling out the back. No one wanted to stay around and talk. But as everyone else is going out the back of the church, there's this one guy kind of shouldering his way through the crowd, making his way to the front. It's obvious he wanted to talk to Corey Ten Boom. And when she got closer, suddenly she recognized him. And he was wearing that night just a brown suit and a brown overcoat. But suddenly she recognized him, and her mind flashed back not to him in a brown suit and a brown overcoat, but in a gray uniform and black boots and a German officer's hat and the skull and crossbones He'd been one of the men who was in charge of Ravensbrook, and he made his way to the front. And he said, Fraulein, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the horrible things I did at Ravensbrook, but Fraulein, I want to know, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And Corey Ten Boone, her mind flashed back to her sister dying in this camp, and she began to thinking she said immediately I had a response my body became stiff and I didn't want to respond I didn't want to offer him forgiveness and he repeated it again he said you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk and I was a guard there but since that time I become a Christian I would like to hear it from your lips as well will you forgive me and at that he put his hand out and Corey Ten Boone said I realized I had a choice to make And here's what she said. She cried out, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So she said, rather woodenly, I put my hand out and grabbed his. Here's what she said. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one thrust out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. And she said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. If God can make two people, a guard in a prison camp and someone who had been a prisoner in the same prison camp, if God can reconcile them that they forgive one another, why can't God do it right here in Wichita, Kansas? Why can't God do something like that right here where people talk about Emmanuel Baptist Church and they say, I don't know what's going on at that church over there, but I tell you this, they love you regardless of who you are and where you're from and they treat you like your family. What a witness, what a testimony. God, do it again. God, do it one more time. Don't you want God to break loose like that? Man, when people get saved and nobody cares what their background is or who they are or where they're from, all they care about is, you're now my brother, you're now my sister in Jesus. Glory! Every head bowed, every eye closed. Miss Lisa's going to come. Listen carefully what I'm about to tell you. This has been a sermon basically to the church because the text is to the church, but listen carefully. If you're here and you're lost and you've never been saved, the same Jesus that saved us can save you. And I'm not promising you that you won't have any problems if you give your life to Christ. But what I am promising you is you will never face another problem alone. And he does bring peace where there's chaos. 
So I'm inviting you this morning, if you want the peace that Christ offers, it comes on his terms, and that's absolute surrender. And so I'm inviting you to come and take my hand. And we can pray. Pastor Ryan and Pastor Andy are here. They take you aside, and they'll share with you how you can know Christ and take all the time that you need. Second group of people, you're here and you're saved and you're a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church and you've been a member for a long time. And you've given and you've given and you've given financially of your time. You've given of your emotions. You've given everything you had to this church. But this morning, would you just say, listen, there are people all around me that have no hope and I want them to have the new hope in the gospel. And I don't care what their background is like. Maybe you'd like to come this morning and just lay down and all your preconceived notions of what evangelism looks like and what the church looks like and just sacrifice them, give them to Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I give up any idea of what I think a church member should look like and Jesus, I, I lay it down in front of you and I, I don't care anymore what their skin color is, what their ethnic heritage is. I do not care. If you save them, I embrace them. Maybe you'd like to come and pray about that. I'll be here at the front. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray for men and women, boys and girls, to be saved. And I'm praying, dear God, that you would change the hearts of all of us. That we would see people as you see them, through the blood of Jesus, people that need to be saved. And I pray, dear God, that you would change hearts. Lord, we can't save anyone. We're asking you to save people through the ministry of this church. And we don't care what they look like. God, just save them. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has been fighting you for decades, I pray they'd surrender this morning. May they know the peace that comes from it. God, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand to your feet. You know the hymn, just as I am. Don't you delay while they're singing. You come.